Okay, so once again, we have this little marathon uh, um, sprint, as I call it, to get through 50 verses of chapter nine. The really cool thing about chapter nine is we're gonna move from seeing what Jesus is doing to seeing how Jesus calls us to be engaged in the ministry that he's uh, modeled and been engaged in. So let us first come to the Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit of God, thank you. Thank you, Father Almighty. Lord Jesus, who loves us, we come today to open your word as a group to study together uh, the words written by your servant and your physician, uh, by the Gentile named Luke. And we just ask, Lord God, that as we continue in this study that you would show us the way, that you would make it clear to us how we um, can apply what we've learned, how we can use your word for your glory. So be with us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, guys. Oh, there we go. <laughs> it's so fun when I can see what's in the pages down here. Anyone relate? All right. Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, and there are some key elements in showing and telling who he is um, by his interactions with the disciples and those around him. So that's what we're really going to look at. What is Jesus saying to his disciples? How is he modeling it? What is he asking them to do? And we're going to launch straight away in the first few verses, and I just want to read them to you. Then Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Okay, I'm gonna stop right there. So if you remember, you've watched Jesus do this. They've been following him a couple weeks ago. Uh, but, uh, he raised uh, someone who had just died. They are having their funeral procession, taking them out uh, to the graveside. He stops them, he heals, and raises um, back to life the young man. We see him healing other people. We see him proclaiming the gospel. Here is key here. If you had to underline something in your Bible, it is Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority that is very, very different than just go out and do it. He's given them the authority to do that. That is a Holy Spirit moment. That is the authority with which hopefully we live our lives and do and, and live out the discipleship that God has called us to. So when you think about this, power and authority to do what? To heal, to minister, to proclaim. So here's a proclamation of the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what I want you now to go out and do. So like, great, we have all this authority. We're going out and he's sending them out to do this. And um, it's just the 12 at this point, a couple of chapters later, he's going to add numbers to that. Um, and then he said this, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving by the town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed and went on their way. So here's the thing. He gives them this great charge. I give you authority. I give you power. I give you an ability to heal. 
to cast out demons, to proclaim the gospel, and oh, by the way, go in need, which is what you're going to go if you have no tunic, you have no money, you have no extra pair of shoes, you have nothing but what you are carrying on you, and no backpacks. <laughs> it's like, oh, I just need a few things, and then you put it all together. No, just go, and go in need, which means you're going to have to depend on those people that you want to minister to. And you're going to also dwell with them. Now, two things about this that I think are important. As uh, someone who goes on mission trips <laughs> and who take folks to go and to learn and to be ministered to as well as to be helpful, we oftentimes go with a wonderful plan for their lives. And we come with enough money and with enough clothes and with enough of whatever it is that we need, that we really have no need, they, they have nothing to offer us. Oh, we're just, you know, we're coming here to take care of you. And that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that we make because then we don't ask them, what is it that you need? And we don't allow them to minister to us. I'm looking at Susan Witt. Years ago, um, I had to take a different flight because of uh, some conflicts that I had here, not terrible conflict, just some issues. So I was meeting the team a day, um, half a day later in England, took off, uh, plane got in trouble, and so I um, got there a whole day late. But they don't give you your baggage because your destination is Kenya, not England, even though you're going through England. I had a little bag, um, and it didn't have anything but a light sweater that I wore on the plane and didn't have a whole lot of anything. And so I get to Kenya, and guess what? My bags are not there. So for four days, nice. Susan Witt, also I think everyone was just tired of me wearing the same clothes and wondering, mm -hmm. she just loaned me her clothes. I was a person in need, and she was more than happy, and I'm very, very grateful, even though you're a little taller and leaner than I am, that it worked out okay. <laughs> so these clothes to her. Go hungry, go in need so that you're going to depend on the people, and then don't be, um, don't be a bee, don't be a hummingbird. We have uh, hummingbird feeders. Hummingbirds are really fun to watch. Praise be to God, they are not crows. If they were, we would not go outside. They are very, very aggressive. I don't know if you know that, but they fight with one another and they're just super aggressive. But they flit from feeder to feeder to feeder. They don't stay very long at anyone, they just keep going, da, 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 da. Oftentimes I think we're in a hurry to see people, and I am guilty of this. I don't take time to dwell. I don't take time to say, well, let me just have a conversation with you rather than 15 other people. We miss out. Dwell, stay with them. If they receive you, don't keep moving around. Just stay there and do whatever I've called you to do in the place where you go. But if they don't want you, if they reject you, if they don't receive what you are being offered in my name, then dust off your feet. <laughs> and what you would do is, is, if you ever had to walk in an area as a good Jew, uh, through an area that was uh, Gentile or was unclean or was somehow defiled, you would, you would dust off both your, your coats, because they were long, which you wore, your tunics were long. You'd dust those off, and you'd dust off um, your, your, your feet, as if to say, I have nothing to do with you. I'm not taking any of you with me. And so it's kind of symbolic of, we're done here. 
And so Jesus sends them out and they go through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. So then we have this pause in verses seven through nine. And you have Herod the, um, Antip Antipas, who is the same Herod that Jesus is going to meet later in Luke at the trials. And Herod is watching what's going on. And Herod makes this statement. He's kind of watching. He's heard from other people about Jesus and all that had taken place. And in verse 7, and he is perplexed because it is said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, okay, listen, John I beheaded, so I'm pretty sure it's not John. Uh, but who is this? Is it Elijah? Is it, an, is it a prophet of old? I really, I hear him, I hear about him, but I want to see him. And again, I think oftentimes it's like, well, I'll believe if I could just see. I'll believe if I could just see. Well, it's the hearing that Jesus is doing. It's the proclaiming. And those who have ears, let them hear. And so Herod is perplexed by that. Um, he's been listening. He identifies it's not, uh, it's not John the Baptist because I'm pretty doggone sure that I beheaded him. Elijah was a prophet of old that um, if you studied scripture, he was very, very influential, did a lot of miracles, also was taken up into heaven. And so um, he never had to die and rise again. He was just taken up. And so they think, well, maybe Elijah's come back or one of the ancient prophets, not sure who that is, but just trying to figure out if I just know who Jesus is, I'll know what to do with him. You ever do that? If I can just solve this, figure out what the problem is or solve or, or, or identify what's wrong, then I can fix it. And I think here it's a little bit like that. I can control him. I need to see him so I can control him. And um, not able to do that. And so that's just a, um, a, a piece of that that's important because we're going to hear it again. Who do people say Jesus is? And you ask that today, just ask somebody that you don't know well. Today I'm just doing a survey, very, very curious. Who would you say that Jesus is? Good, good person, a prophet, a model. Every once in a while you'll get, he's the son of the living God. Uh, but you'll get a lot of other things too. So we're, uh, it's not uncommon to want to know who is Jesus. People ask that question. We should ask that question. Okay, then you're going to go back. So okay, so that sends out the disciples. Then in between we see that Herod's vexed by this. We're going to see again, who do people say Jesus is? And then you're going to, in between, see this miracle. So the disciples come back. On the return, the disciples told us, this is verse 10, Jesus, all they had done. And he took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. This is still in the Capernia area. When the crowds followed out about it, they followed him, heard out, when the crowds found out, about it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. Now, in years past, like several decades ago, I used to do youth ministries, which I actually love. Junior high kids come to Christ at that age group more than any other age group in in all of your you know hundred years you may live. Junior high kids are 
pretty insecure about a lot of things, but they so desperately want to know truth and they want to feel loved. I can't think of anything better than to share Jesus with them. But we do things with, with junior high kids. I also worked with high school kids. They're a little more um, uh, vervy, I guess I would say. But anyway, you spend time with them. And I had just gone on this youth trip with um, mostly high school kids. And we'd had a really nice time. But they too, you know, kind of went to be with you and hang with you and do all these things. And so when you get back, you're really, at least I was really happy to have some downtime. You know, Jesus takes his disciples. Well done, guys. Let's go up and spend some time at the city of Bethsaida and just have some downtime together. And that sounds wonderful. By the way, I went to a wedding the next day after this really big trip. And here come all these high school kids over to, you know, this is their youth director, and they want to spend time with them. And I'm like, leave me alone, please. <laughs> this is the wedding of my friend, and I've had enough of you. And it's kind of, I would, I would not do well with Jesus here. I would just go, really? You welcome them? Aren't we, like, supposed to hang out and take some rest time? That is important, but Jesus sees the need, and he welcomes them. I can't believe that people go, oh, I, I don't want to bother God with this. He's got so busy. I'm like, really? What if you go ahead and bother God with this? Because he would welcome. He would welcome your prayers. He would welcome your concerns. So they come to Jesus, and he welcomes him. And um, the day was drawing to a close, verse 12. And the 12 came to him and said, send the crowds away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a deserted place. So the, the, L, the disciples have really appreciated that Jesus has called them, that he's doing things with them. This is a really, really nice um, time that he's teaching them, but now it's late in the day. By the way, they're, they're going to tell you here in a moment that there are 5,000 men, and it does mean, mean males. and very, very likely there were women and children. I'm good with a miracle of 5,000, even if it was 15 or 20. It just is a miracle. So they're there. They want Jesus to send them away because the day's drawing near and they need to go find a place to stay and food to eat and everything else. And so Jesus said, uh, you give them something to eat. And it's kind of this language like, well, send them away, Jesus. And he's like, you give them something to eat. And um, their response is we have no more than five loaves and two fishes unless we go and buy food for all these people. Now that's kind of a, a joke, yeah, unless we go out and buy all these food. Now this uh, summer I preached on another gospel that has the same story, and in that uh, we learn about they found this ch child that had, you know, the five loaves and two fishes. But so what they probably did before they went to Jesus is they probably kind of did a survey around the land. Anybody bring food? Do you have enough to share? Is there a chance that this might be? And they know that there's not. There's not enough food here to share with all these people. And certainly there's no way that we either have the money or the resources to go and buy what's needed for these people. So thank you very much. Nice to see you. Um, kind of like someone that, you, that you're like, really welcoming to leave, but they just keep hanging out. And um, we used to have babysitters like that. They just didn't quite know when to go home. I've paid you, and it's time to go home, and it's really late, and they just left a chat, and you go, okay, thank you, you know, these people aren't leaving. And so Jesus goes, okay, feed them. And they go, there's only five loaves, two fishes, no money to get what we need. 
Uh, and it, there's where you know there's about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50 each. You see in the Old Testament when um, Moses is trying to get some things done, he breaks people up into smaller groups. Um, 50 is a good complete number there. And they did so, made them all sit down. And Jesus does this, now listen very carefully, please. And taking the five loaves and two fishes, he looked up to heaven then blessed and broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd. What does that sound like to you? Jesus took the bread, blessed it, gave it. Where do we do that? Communion. This liturgy is one we're going to see time and again. It is the liturgy of always giving thanks to God and then sharing what we have. And so I, I love this. This is like before you get to the Lord's Supper, here is a model that's already in place. It's been there. Now, Jesus uses new words also in the Last Supper. But here we see that communion. So next time we have communion together and you see one of the pastors raise the bread and say, and having given thanks to the Father, he broke the bread, gave it to them. Okay. Then he... Then we find out that all ate and were filled. What was left over was gathered up 12 ba baskets of broken pieces. Certainly the 12 baskets probably represent the 12 disciples. They had their fill. So if you've ever been to a place and somebody shows up, or even if it's your own family and you haven't done as much you know, preparing as you thought, there's just not quite enough food. And then you have somebody who's really, really nice and they just, oh, I'm full, you know, I just don't need that much. Or can we just tide you over? Can, if you have a child that is just so hungry and you just need a little something to tie them over, that's kind of how we feel. Maybe that's what was going on here. They had their fill, they were, they were satiated. Their hunger was taken care of because when Jesus gives you something, he gives you all that you need. And very, very symbolically, this is put in here, but it's also gospel, it's also true. There was so much food that they had 12 baskets left over. So just, just knowing that when Jesus is going to perform something, he, he really gives us all that we need and so that we are, we are satisfied and filled. Okay, so I told you about Herod, and Herod said, so who is this person? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he a prophet of old? Guess what? Jesus gets with his disciples. And once when Jesus was praying, now you're going to see that praying repeated a couple of times, all through the Gospels, but in the next several verses. Praying is essential for who Jesus is. He does it often. Um, he finds it um, always in his ministry. And if you're ever wanting to check, am I doing the right thing? I think prayer is a great way to go. You know, Lord, if this is not what you want, bring me in another direction. Not here, here I am, Lord, I'm, I'm taking off. Are you with me? <laughs> Lord, is, am I really going the way that you want me to go? Am I really doing what you want me to do? And so Jesus is praying, goes up there. While he was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked, who do the crowds say that I am? Isn't that interesting? Herod's trying to figure out who is Jesus. Jesus saying, well, so, so you folks tell me, who do the people say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others, 
that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. Lots of people are asking the question, who is this person? Who is Jesus? And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, Messiah of God. Now that takes us just 18 through 20. And I want to stop for a couple of minutes there. Messiah, the word Messiah means anointed. And there were three kinds of folks that were anointed, Old Testament, carried into new. Kings, not so much into new with, because uh, the priests were, our prophets were gone. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, kings were anointed. And that was something that they did. The God Messiah, and that's why I kind of hesitate on the word when I said, you are the Messiah of God. You're not just the Messiah that gets anointed to be a prophet or a priest or a king. You are the anointed. You are the chosen one of God. See how different that answer identifies for us who Jesus is? In Old Testament and certainly into the New Testament with the oppression of the Roman Empire, they wanted that anointed king, the King David, who was called to lead the people into battle, who was called to take charge, who was called to take back their land. Kind of a national triumphant king. And Peter, who, as we know, kind of vacillates in his faith. That's why we like him. <laughs> we can relate with him. But here he gets it totally right. The Messiah of God. And then Jesus says this, and it's an interesting thing. He said, okay, now that I've told you this, this is verse 21, he sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what you have known, what you, what you proclaim to be. It's true, but don't tell anyone. And here's why. The Son of Man must undergo, that's, and here's why is my words, by the way, not Jesus's. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So he gives them this, and he repeats this again. He's headed towards Jerusalem. He's modeled for them. Here's how you do ministry now. I want you to do it. I want you to go out. I want you to be instruments of God with God's authority to heal and to proclaim and to raise um, those who have demon possession. This is your job. This is your job now. And by the way, I am. <laughs> when Jesus is like, Messiah of God, don't you tell anyone, but listen to this, that I am going to suffer to be rejected, to be killed, and I will raise again on the third day. And then he goes on to teach them, and here's where I think following Jesus for us is uh, a challenge. We kind of like that easy Jesus. <laughs> um, it doesn't cost too much, but that's not what Jesus says next. Then <clears throat> Jesus said to them, verse 23, 
If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now he's referring to some that will see the resurrection, that will see Jesus after he's raised up. But let's look at this. He's talking about what does it cost to really be followers of mine? And it means that the daily cross you pick up is a cross that says, follow me. Now, things to be avoided um, in scripture are um, the cross. <laughs> the cross was shame, was absolute shameful. It was torturous. It was incredibly torture, torturous for people. And, um, and here Jesus is saying, to follow me means the thing that you would most dread is what I want you to take up daily, that sacrifice and follow me, knowing I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna be rejected, I'm gonna be crucified, but I will raise, or I will rise. And so <clears throat> here he gives to them the cost of discipleship includes denying self. Uh, Any time in news, we can look at those who have, who have done extremely well uh, pursuing gaining the world. But at the end of the day, at the end of your life, you're not taking it with you. It's not of something of value. So years ago, we went to Egypt. Many of you um, have been, I'm certain. They have these phenomenal pyramids. Anybody been there? You know, and so what they did is when they buried, you know, the, their kings and priests, they put all their gold, jewels, valuables in these pyramids. They buried them because they're taking them with them. They're going to need them in their next life. Guess how many of those gold, <laughs> jewels and golds and all those gorgeous artifacts are left? Nothing. Not in any of them. They got robbed. People went in, it's like, hi, I'm gonna take all my valuables and I'm gonna put it right here. Oh, really? Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> They're gone. Every once in a while you hear somebody that's, I'm gonna be buried with this or buried with that. I'm like, you're not taking it with you, you know? And so here you go, you can gain, you can gain the whole world and lose your life. Or you could lose your life for my sake and gain everything. If you reject me, I got it. I'm not gonna make you. But it's not easy. The cost of discipleship's not easy. Okay, turn over your little paper. We're going to look at the transfiguration. And this is when Jesus <clears throat> begins, and it begins this way in verse 28. Now about eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter and J John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, by the way, uh, Jesus, probably, it was probably Mount Hermon that Jesus went to to pray because given in the area and where they were, that would make the most amount of sense if you love that kind of, you know, geography, there you go. 
But mountains are very, very significant in the ministry of Jesus. And I've just named some in your um, cheat sheet there. And um, Jesus prays, he preaches, he performs miracles. He was tempted on a mountain. He called his disciples. And at Mount Golgotha, about 2,700 feet up, is where his passion is completed. So there's significance when Jesus goes up to a mountain. And Luke wants that, as you have known Jesus or heard about Jesus or studying Jesus, the mount, going up to a mountain is important. So he puts that in there and he goes there to do what? To pray. Again, he was just praying before. He goes there to pray. That's when it increases. He marches towards Jerusalem. Now, eight days after is when the transfiguration, um, after he had talked to them, um, after all these sayings, they, uh, they went up to this mountain. And eight days is important for, probably for a couple of reasons. One is if you have a male child, it is eight days after they are born that they are circumcised. Take them to the temple um, and you have them circumcised. The story of Jesus, they had Jesus do that. Also, if you are a leper and you have been healed, you wait eight days from the day that you have been healed and then you can go back into the temple. So there is an, a known time that says there's a waiting period and now here's this time has come. So there's kind of this, this feel of they waited and now it's been eight days, which seems like a strange number because we like that number seven, but eight days, given in the context of the Old Testament, a waiting time, and then they go and um, he takes them up, um, up to this mountain and while he is praying, there we go again, there appear, the appearance of his face changed, verse 29, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of him, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. There you go. That's it. What's going to happen to him is kind of said there. Now, a couple things here that we want to look at. Elijah and Moses, like we think about Moses, oh, that's the law. Moses gave the law. We think about Elijah. Elijah is that prophetic voice. But those two are far more than that because from the get-go, they're talking about God who is redeeming Israel, God who is um, bringing them a Messiah, God who's going to take care of them. So they, they're more than just the law and the prophet. They stand together apart from anyone else. They are known uh, more... Um, most, the name of Moses is used more time than any other name. And um, he, very, very important. They are receiving, because remember Moses, it was more than just law. He received the word of God. Elijah, he, rece he received the word of God and brought it to the people. So here we see the same thing going on here. Um, they are speaking with Jesus, but the language would show that Jesus is in charge of the conversation because he is the final prophet. You don't need any more. Jesus is the one that comes to fulfill all the promises made in the Old Testament and all that we have seen coming in the New Testament to say, um, the kingdom of God is coming, kingdom of God is present, the Son of Man is here, the Son of God. And so all these things are coming in. They're talking to him. And then here's what happened. And so while they're seeing this, and the disciples, it, it tells us um, in verse 32, now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. And I think that 
folks is just out of exhaustion, um, both emotional as well as physical and probably spiritual exhaustion. You're around somebody who's doing phenomenal things and he's got time, even though you went away to spend some time alone, to welcome 5,000 people who come to you <laughs> to hear what you're going to say. Uh, they're tired, they're weary, but not so weary that they're not watching. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, if it is good for us to be here, let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. Okay, so let me just stop there for a second. In the Old Testament, um, the word for dwelling is tabernacle. And so there is a sense of the tabernacle, the holies of holies, the inner sanctum place. And so Peter, I used to think that P Peter, you just don't get it. You're just trying to make Jesus hang out here and not go down to reality of that suffering, rejection, murder, and, and resurrection. You know, you're, you're trying to avoid that. You're just trying to, oh, let's just go ahead and make a dwelling here and stay here and this is what we'll do. No, the glory of God has been shown. They saw it in Jesus' face, glory around them, and Peter is thinking, this is a place where we need to make the dwelling to the tabernacle. This is the place because in the Old Testament, remember that's where God would come and be with his people. And so he is recognizing the glory of God present in this moment. And so I have, I've, I've taught that so incorrectly all these years. So Lord, forgive me and, and uh, Village Church, forgive me if I taught that before, but in studying it more, I thought, oh my gosh, I totally didn't get the connection in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. And here is this place set aside for God's glory. Peter sees it. Probably not fully, because it's like he didn't quite get it. And then this happens. Then from a cloud came a Oh, wait, wait, and oh, 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 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. So there's a sense of the presence of God, so overwhelming. Then they heard a voice from the cloud that said, this is my son, my chosen, listen to him. And I just want to stop there for a second and um, look back at, um, before we go to the clouds, look back at the first part. You don't have to turn, I'll turn for us. In Luke chapter three, at the baptism of Jesus, um, God said this, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. You see what God is saying now? God is, is saying to them, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And he's changing that from, this is a relationship I have with my son, my beloved, to this is my son, the chosen. He's come for you. Listen to him. Do as he says. And so this overshadowing we see in Exodus in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, where um, there's an overshadowing uh, that comes to the people. And then in Mary, remember when Mary is having a conversation with the angel and the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come and overshadow you. 
And so you see this language again that there is a presence of God. The glory of God is at that transfiguration. Okay? That one's a big one. Okay. Uh, just a few more things in the next few minutes. So you have next that um, Jesus heals a boy with a demon. Now, some important things that happen in this. Remember, Luke is a physician, so he gets medical things. And you hear on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him, and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I, beg, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Oh, just a pause. You know, they just came back. You know, he sends them out. They're healing people. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're casting out demons. And now all of a sudden, oh, they're not successful here. I think if we're failing forward, folks, we're doing the work of Jesus. Will we always, 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 always get it right? Will we always, 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 you know, how many of us have shared the gospel with somebody sincerely, truly caring, and they're like, thank you, <laughs> and not really ever responding, or not really ever hearing? Have you prayed for people and they've not been healed. I mean, I've, I've done both. I've prayed for people, and thanks be to God, God touched them. Um, I prayed for people and cried out to God, and um, they are still ill. All we can do is be faithful. So Jesus is going, you faithless generation, in just a moment. That's not against it, the disciples. It's just saying there is so much that's in need, and we haven't yet arrived. But the father is amazing because he doesn't ask Jesus to touch him. He says, just look at him. Now, a couple things that are important here. Um, this is a, a story of demon possession. That's important when you're talking about the Messiah. That's important, the Messiah of God who has control even over demons. Epilepsy was known at the time of Jesus. In fact, Mark and Matthew, who have a similar story about a, a child with epilepsy, that needs to be healed, or, or, or a person with epilepsy that needs to be healed. Luke is very careful. Luke, the physician who would know what epilepsy is, uses demon for a very specific reason. It's not epilepsy. There's a demon. This is in need of a great healing. And so he kind of, this story is kind of set apart that way. And, uh, and then Jesus says, oh, you slow generation, you perverse generation. How much longer must I be with you and bear with you? All that's going on, and he's just seeing a broken world, and he's seeing that things are not right. Don't, don't think that the disciples are just total failures. They're not. Um, they will have successes and failures. And even the greatest failure of Peter comes for us the greatest hope when we blow it. His denial becomes for us. Even if I deny you, you can't deny me. And the Lord will be there for you. So Jesus then says, bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Now, a couple weeks ago, remember the mother whose son had died? 
and Jesus raised him, and then he gave him back to his mother. And the story is in, in Luke, earlier in Luke that we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, is really centered much more on the mother than on the one who was healed. And here, kind of in the same way, here's a father who said, if you just look at him, can you just look at him and he'll be okay? And Jesus takes the boy and he hands him back to his father. Uh, to me, I just think that's a, a, a tender moment of who God is in our lives. That he hears our prayers, that he cares for those things that we are going. And he comes to us and gives us those things that we need and restores to us those things that we ask. God's timing, not ours. But this is something that Jesus continually does in our lives to give us that hope, uh, that joy. So he gives them to his Father, and all were astonished at the greatness of God. Here we go again. It's, I feel like, you know, with Jesus, you're always on a roller coaster, but I, I feel with here, you know, you, I want us to connect the dots in a sense. The uh, disciples going out, success, failure, Jesus' success, Jesus saying, um, yes, I am the Messiah, but before that, um, or before that, feeding the 5,000 when the disciples didn't have the faith to do it, after they had faith to do it, the disciples not succeeding here, Jesus succeeding here, but all along he's calling them into himself and he's talking about, I am headed towards the cross. And he reminds them in the next few verses. While everyone was amazed at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, it's just like, again, you got it that I'm the Messiah of God. This is really good news for them. Okay, now be quiet because I need to tell you some bad news. Good news, bad news. Good news, this child is, okay, that's wonderful, but I'm pulling you aside and I need to let you know. Let these words sink in to your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. There's a play on words there. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed by men. And, but they did not understand. He's saying again, I'm headed towards Jerusalem, and they just didn't get it. Part of it is it's concealed to them. It's a progressive revelation because I think sometimes if you hear the end of the story, I don't, are, there are many people who read the end of a novel before they start it. I'm not one of those. I'm like, no, I'm just going to wait and see. Um, <clears throat> But it may be that sometimes you read the end of the novel and you think, well, I don't like this. I'm not going to read this book. <laughs> and maybe, maybe for them it's like, don't go all the way because you may get stuck before the very end. And so they're a little complex by that. But Jesus is telling them, once again, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put into the hands of those who are against me. And then the last part, is, um, is when Jesus said in verse 46 through 50, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it um, by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among all of you is the greatest. Now, a couple things to think about. We always think if we just have the faith of a child, and children, 
children are the best. Four-year-olds, how many four-year-olds do you know don't believe in God? I mean, they're all like, yeah, I believe in God, and they pray, and they're, I mean, honestly, it's almost like God touches them early on. They have this, this feeling of God is real, and so you think, oh, like a little child. But let me tell you, children, we consider them precious. We consider them of high value simply because of our ability to love them and care for them. We've been given the gift of children, but in the time of Jesus, and they were considered a gift, but they had little to no value. They were the lowest of the low. They were the least of these. They were children. Many of them died. They never made it to adulthood. They never made it to teenagers. Many of them died in birth. Many, 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 many children died. They were too young to be of value in the house or with their father's work. They just weren't very helpful. <laughs> so they weren't valued. It's just the way of the culture, the way it was to be a value meant you were a contributing person. We think of that sometimes. We think, well, if the people of value are the people who are really contributing. But here in this, the children were those that were not, you know, they didn't vote, they didn't have a say, they didn't, couldn't testify, they couldn't do any of the things that were so important. They were the least, and Jesus pulls a child over and goes, this is who I'm sending you to minister to. This insignificant, marginalized little being until they get to adulthood. No, no. To the very least of these, take care of them. Take care of them. And all those who are like them, because that's our call. Our call is to be aware of those in greatest need. And oftentimes, it's not who we necessarily expect. And we maybe didn't think that a, a child here was just that little faith, but no, it's because they're just not counted. But Jesus counts them. He counts them as the thing most valuable. That which is the least will be the greatest. Very last thing. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. So it's almost, you know, uh, we believe in the priesthood of all believers as good reformed people. But every once in a while we go, well, I don't know, they're not this or they're not that, or, you know, why are they doing this? But they're doing something good in the name of Jesus. So disciples, and I think we all do that, like we want to be in that, kind of that inner circle. I had a conversation the other day, and one of the choir members was sharing one of the things that they love most about our choir is that it's not cliquish, and having been in so many choirs, that can be. You have these little cliques in your choir. What a gift, what a nice thing that is. Here's, here's clicky disciples going, well, we don't know about this person that was healing someone in your name because they're not following us. Jesus said, let them alone. They're not against me, they're doing what is good. And they're for you also. There we go, okay, I was just a little over, but it's really a lot. All right, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. As you go out today, go out and look for the very least of these. It may not be in a four-year-old. It may be in your next door neighbor. Love on them, restore them, amen. <laughs>